Uh, with that being said, once again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Uh, we're continuing a series that we began about three weeks ago now. This would be our third week, walking through Paul's uh, epistle of 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. Now, I've, I've been off Facebook for about a year, and it was one of the greatest decisions of my whole life. Uh, if you haven't tried leaving Facebook behind, I promise that there's life after it. Uh, but I know there's, there's some things about Facebook that probably haven't changed. For instance, that on Facebook, there's still a whole lot of people who have very strong opinions about things that they don't understand at all, uh, which is why I left in the first place. Uh, the second thing that I, that I would say has probably not changed about Facebook, and feel free to let me know if it has, is that in your bio on Facebook, you can still share an absurd amount of personal information that's a great way to get your identity stolen. Uh, you can lay down your, <laughs> your height, your hair color, your gender, your religious preference, your birthday, I mean, you can put whatever you want in your bio. Uh, but, but the section that, that was always so interesting to me when I was on Facebook is the relationship status. Uh, and, and I say that because I know I'm not the only person who met somebody who they thought were, was interesting uh, and potentially dateable, and then I immediately lurked them on Facebook to see if they were single or not. And it's the worst when people just don't fill out the relationship status because then you're just like, I'm, I'm flying blind. Um, but, but in the relationship status, it's, it's single, it's married, it's divorced, it's engaged. There's all these options, but there's one uh, that I always thought was funny, which was it's complicated. Uh, and I think that if Paul were to describe his relationship with this church, that's, that's what he would say. It is complicated. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, then, then you're aware of the fact that Paul has a lengthy history with the church in Corinth. Actually, about five years worth of letters going back and forth. He planted the church around 50 AD. That's in Acts 20. Uh, he sends them a letter that they misunderstand. He sends them another letter, uh, which they get upset about. He sends them a third letter calling them to repent. And, and then we come to 2 Corinthians, which is probably actually 4 Corinthians. It's just the second one that we have preserved in the New Testament. Uh, so Paul has a complicated history with these people, but it's on the upswing. And if you want a little bit more of the details, we went into it these last few weeks, so you can check out the podcast if you want to brush up on the history. But, but what we need to know for the purposes of tonight is that the Corinthians are starting to turn things around. Things are starting to look better. They've made it through the eye of the storm, and they're on their way to smooth sailing. But things haven't quite gotten to where they need to be. So Paul writes to the Corinthians for what is likely a fourth time, hoping that he can get them over that hump of, of you guys are starting to repent, you're starting to get it, you've accepted me again, but there's still some of you who don't accept my authority as an apostle. And beyond that, those of you who do accept me have turned on each other. And so at first you turned on me, Paul says, and now you're turning on each other. And so he writes Second Corinthians with this in mind. And there's these themes that I've been holding out in front of you, and I hope that you're starting to notice how they continue to, to pop up even in these first 14 verses we've been through. Uh, one of the primary themes, and it's, it's really two themes that are closely related together, is suffering and comfort. One of the reasons that the Corinthians haven't accepted Paul is because they think that he suffers too much to be a genuine apostle of Jesus. It's an early version of the prosperity gospel. If you're really doing what God wants you to, then why do bad things happen to you? essentially. And so Paul wants them to understand, listen, if you call yourself a Christian, you serve a crucified Messiah. Uh, Isaiah calls the Messiah a man of sorrows. So, so why would you think that the Christian life wouldn't be marked by some kind of suffering? Why would you expect that your life would be um, marked any less by difficulty than the man whose name you bear, which is Jesus? 
Uh, at the same time, he, he wants them to get this. He wants them to wrap their mind around uh, this suffering in the Christian life. But this isn't a pity party. Uh, he doesn't want them to wallow in their misery because he wants them to also recognize you don't just serve a crucified Messiah, you serve a risen Savior. And just as suffering was a part of Jesus' life, suffering does not stand in isolation from the resurrection and the ascension. And so if your life is marked by Jesus, Paul wants them to see this, that there was going to be suffering, but it is never without hope. Uh, the next thing that you're going to see, and you'll see it in the following weeks especially, is conflict and resolution. Make no mistake, things are getting better in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, but they're not where they need to be. And so, so Paul is not going to pretend like there's not conflict there that needs to be addressed. But he doesn't want to revel in it. He doesn't want to see conflict extend indefinitely. The, the thing that always struck me as absurd when I was in high school is the people who would say, I hate drama the most, were the ones that would stir it up the most because their lives were boring and they needed something to fill the time. And, and so Paul is going to acknowledge that there is conflict, but, but he's not going to just let it stay there so that his life is interesting and he has something to write about. He wants to see this conflict reconciled. So you're going to see suffering and hope. You'll see conflict and you'll see reconciliation. Um, or I'm sorry, suffering and comfort, conflict and uh, reconciliation. And then you're going to see affliction and hope. Uh, and you might remember this from last week in uh, Paul's kind of jumping into the heart of the issue. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to us when we were in Asia. Things were so bad, I despaired of life itself. That is a startlingly honest statement from an apostle. I don't want you to be unaware of the fact that we were so afflicted, we were so burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. He actually says, we felt we'd been given the sentence of death. But again, Paul is not willing to just revel in his misery. He doesn't fall into the Taylor Swiftian, look at how bad my life is, let me get some hit albums out of it. Uh, but, in, but instead, he, he says there's a purpose behind my pain, and it is to point me towards the fact that even if I feel I've been given a death sentence, I serve a God who has the power to raise the dead. So there's affliction, but it is not without hope. Corey read for us this text that we're going to get to in a couple weeks. We're pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. He never lets one appear without emphasizing the other. He's not willing to just revel in misery. Second Corinthians is a dark book. I, I don't want to pretend like it's not. When, when I was talking with Stephen Stow, who's our communications guy here at Baylife, and I was showing him some of the artwork for Second Corinthians, he said, man, this is really dark. And I said, have you read the book? <laughs> it's really dark. And he said, man, I, I get that we want to preach the whole counsel of God, but, but do you think that you're going to end up with people in like psych wards by the time you're done with just how sad you're going to be for five months? Uh, and I said, the reality is it's not, it's not just sad. Uh, there's hope throughout 2 Corinthians. It's dark, but, but it's only so dark so that people can see the incredible hope that we have in Christ. It's not simply a, uh, a march through an atrocity exhibition. It's not simply a, a steady drudgery through the dead marshes. Paul wants these people to have hope. And he loves this church, and you're going to see that so much in the text that we're in for today which is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, uh, which says this. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. 
that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So if you've known me for any length of time or heard me preach a couple times, I don't think you'll have a hard time accepting that I was kind of a weird kid growing up. I was kind of, kind of weird. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I can remember specifically in the second grade turning in my art project in, in second grade, whatever an art project counted for in the second grade. And I, remember, I don't remember what I actually drew, but I remember my teacher, Ms. Richards, looking at me straight in the eyes and saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you so weird? If you're studying like elementary education, can I tell you that that doesn't work well for second graders? Um, but, but I think I actually peaked in my weirdness probably around kindergarten. Um, and then I just grew into my personality from there on out. I got, I got cooler as time went on. So I said, Ms. Richards, you haven't even seen how bad it was. Um, and and in, in kindergarten especially, um, my parents did such a great job of instilling in me um, compassion for people. Uh, they, they didn't want me to be the kind of kid that you see on a world star hip-hop video who's beating up nerds and making fun of people who are different from them. Uh, and so one of the things that my mom especially instilled in me is you don't call people stupid, you don't call them idiots, you never make fun of people, you don't call them dumb. Those things are off-limits. Great. Good stuff. Mama Lo did all right in that. But I took it so seriously uh, that I was paranoid that I would accidentally slip up and break the rules. And so there were times in kindergarten where I would think the word stupid, and then I would go, I know I can't say it, but can I think it? No, I shouldn't think it, but now I can't stop thinking it because I know I shouldn't think it. It's like when people say don't push the red button and then all you can do is, is think about pushing the red button. So there were, there were times in kindergarten where I would be sitting there coloring or doing whatever you do in kindergarten, sitting and staring at walls and learning about words. And, and I would freak myself out because I couldn't stop thinking the words that I wasn't allowed to say. And with you know, my terrible kindergarten theology, I thought who can forgive sins but Miss Perkins alone. And so I would go to my teacher, Miss Perkins, and say, Miss Perkins, I am so sorry, but I just thought the word stupid. And she would look at me and go, and? <laughs> I just needed to tell you, because I just, I just thought it. And now I can't stop thinking it. <laughs> and she would say, Travis, calm down. I don't know, she'd give me animal crackers or something, and it wouldn't work. I would just sit at my desk, so paranoid about the fact that I was thinking these words that I wasn't supposed to say. Uh, now, I was a weird kid. I get that. I, I acknowledge it freely. But I think all of us have some sense in which we have experienced times where we have violated our conscience. We've done something that we know we ought not to do, and we have felt that crushing weight. Maybe it didn't crush you like kindergarten Travis was crushed. I think few people have experienced the angst of kindergarten Travis. But we can all empathize to some extent with this idea of our conscience testifying against us when we've done it wrong. And it's so interesting to me that when Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians, as he really gets into the meat of his letter uh, and addresses the actual criticisms they've launched against him, he starts by saying this, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. And he goes on to say, supremely so towards you. It's almost as if Paul says, listen, you may hate me, you may disagree with me, you may think I've done all kinds of terrible things, but I want you to know, Corinth, my conscience is clear. I, I have done nothing that I feel wrong about. Now, the natural question that arises from that is, so what? Right? There, there's plenty of serial killers in prison who've done stuff that they don't feel wrong about. It doesn't make it not wrong. And so, and so we do have to ask the question, 
why does Paul go to his conscience and say, my conscience is clear? And the reality is, like so many other things, that this is rooted in something Paul has actually already said because, as I've said, Paul's written to the Corinthians multiple times. Uh, and the other documented writing of Paul to the Corinthians is 1 Corinthians. It will be in specifically chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. Because this is not the first time Paul has talked to them about the conscience. And so let me read the text for you. It's a little bit long, uh, but it'll be on the screen, and, and I think it's going to help us understand what he means in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, for whom and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some though former, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, those of you who are vegetarians or vegans are hearing this and going, Ha! Your stomach is a graveyard. And Paul won't eat meat either. And the reality is that, that I've heard this passage of Scripture appealed to multiple times to justify multiple prohibitions against Christians. I've heard this passage appealed to when, when somebody says Christians shouldn't listen to secular music because uh, it offends me, it violates my conscience, which means that if you actually love me as a brother, you won't listen to secular music. Or uh, here's another one that gets thrown around a lot is Christians shouldn't drink beer even if they're of age and not getting drunk because it offends me, it violates my conscience, therefore you shouldn't do it. Now, um, I think all of these possible arguments actually miss what, what Paul is saying here. At least they miss the fullness of what Paul's saying. So let me give you a little bit of context. Um, Paul is answering a question the Corinthians asked. We've already talked a little bit about what Corinth is like, that it's this kind of modern-day L.A., this wild city where there's all kinds of different religions going, uh, all kinds of different gods being worshipped. And in, in these times, uh, sacrifices were offered constantly to these gods. But, but when animals were offered as sacrifices, it wasn't normally the whole animal that was offered. I mean, the animal was sacrificed to the god, but then they would take the heart or the kidney or the lungs or some other part of it and burn it on the altar. And that leaves a whole lot of extra meat that's just going to sit around and smell bad. So what would happen in Corinth and in other cities like it is that to make a little bit of money for the temple, uh, the priests would take the leftover meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols and they would have butcher shops out behind their temple. It would be the equivalent of us having like the Publix Deli out on the basketball court would not go well and probably violate all kinds of food safety standards. Um, but they would sell the butchered meat to people at a cheaper price, and people thought, hey, this has been offered to whatever God. This God must be happy with me for buying the meat that's been offered to these idols. And so what, what Paul, what the question that Paul is being asked is, are we allowed to eat this? That's what the Corinthians want to know. 
Are we allowed to eat the stuff that's been sacrificed to idols? Because we know that, that there is no God but the one true God, the triune God. So are we actually doing anything wrong by eating the meat sacrificed to idols? That's a good question that they ask. Uh, and, and the flow of, of Paul's argument is this. He, he basically says, you're right. There is no gods behind these idols. They are just idols. They can't hear. They can't speak. They're made of stone. And, and he says, there is freedom in Christ for you to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. But, and here's the huge but. He says, you may have brothers and sisters who have just left these cults worshiping these gods. And they would buy this meat to serve those pagan gods. And they would eat it in celebration of the gods to whom it was offered. And for them, to eat that meat would be the equivalent in their heart of betraying Christ. And he follows that up by saying, if you who have knowledge, you who are so much further along in the Christian life, you who are so much more wise in the ways of Scripture, if you encourage these people to violate their conscience, even if their conscience is going further than it needs to, you are teaching them that it is okay to ignore their conscience. You are teaching them to harden themselves against it. And as they become more mature Christians, and as their conscience more fully apprehends what it is that God wants of his people, you have already taught them that it's okay to ignore that. And there will come a time when the Holy Spirit convicts them through that conscience, and you've already set a precedent that it's okay to ignore it. Isn't it incredible that for Paul, the issue isn't meat itself. It's about preserving the individual conscience. And he doesn't want believers to violate their conscience even if the conscience is going further than it needs to. He takes it so seriously. And we, we see this in the modern day and age. You have brothers and sisters who've come to know the Lord and in their previous life, so to speak, before they knew Christ, they were raging drinkers and partiers and alcoholics. And I wonder how many of us in, in utter naivety, not, not in some sort of like mischievous, mean-spirited way, we push them to try this fancy new craft beer in Seminole Heights. And in so doing, we have violated their conscience. Not because there's anything wrong with a Christian having a beer, but because for these brothers and sisters... They're convicted against it, and you keep pushing them to ignore it, and they learn to harden themselves against conviction. I remember when I was younger, my cousin Ben, who I love dearly, went through this phase where he really, really, really wanted to obey his parents. And sometimes, in a rather pharisaical sense, he took what his parents said, and he just ran with it. So it was like, I'm not allowed to watch movies past this point. I'm not, allow I'm not allowed to watch more than like an hour and a half of TV. Well, it's an hour and 28 minutes, and Ben would go, I can't, I have to turn the TV off. I'm not allowed to. This is not like a high school Ben. This is like an elementary school Ben. And I would keep pushing Ben and go, no, it's fine. You still have two more minutes. And he's like, no, I can't. My parents don't want me to, and I don't want to break my parents' rules. And I would keep pushing him because the reality was, is, is there freedom to watch the full hour and 30 minutes of TV? Yes. But what I was teaching him to do was to ignore his conscience. When the conscience doesn't lead us to sin, Paul wants Christians to honor one another's conscience. That's why he's going to go on, and when he talks to Timothy in the book of Ephesians, he's going to say part of the reason that you have false teachers is because these men and these women who are teaching false things have seared their conscience to the point that they burnt off the nerve endings. They've so ignored their conscience, they've so rejected it, they've so shunned it, they've so suppressed it, that they are not even convicted about the fact that they're doing something wrong. 
So it's with all this in mind that Paul comes to the Corinthians again and he says, listen, I want you to hear me, that in the way I've treated you, in the way I've been your apostle, my conscience is clear and you of all people, Corinthians, know how seriously I take my conscience and how seriously I take your conscience to the point that I would give up eating meat itself if it would keep you from violating your conscience. That's why he says my conscience is clear because they know that this isn't some flippant thing that he just throws out. My conscience is clear when he makes a habit of violating it. I wonder if you and I as Christians have taken our consciences so seriously that when we say I have a clear conscience, it actually means something like it meant something when Paul said it. I wonder how many of us, and I've, I've been guilty of this myself, have burned our conscience by carrying bitterness towards people long past its time. I wonder how many of us have seared our conscience by exposing ourselves to things that we know we ought not to. I wonder how many of us have burned the nerve endings off of our conscience through exposure to pornography to the point that we know we shouldn't do what we're doing, but there's no conviction because we have burnt it down. Paul is so careful about the conscience that when he says my conscience is clear, it means something for the Corinthians. And he goes on, he says, we have behaved in the world with simplicity, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Now, remember again from past weeks what the Corinthians have been criticizing Paul of. Uh, one, that he is a boring speaker. He doesn't use a lot of funny illustrations. He doesn't reference Facebook in his sermons. Um, they've also criticized him because he's not doing enough miracles like the apostles that they found for themselves when they kicked Paul out. The criticism is essentially that he's not interesting enough. And Paul responds and says, he, he doesn't even dispute that. He says, my conscience is clear because I conducted myself towards you with simplicity, not with flashiness, not with showboating, not with pyrotechnics and laser light explosions. My conscience is clear because I was simple in the way I conducted myself towards you. Can I tell you how many times I have come back to this text as I pace my apartment or walk in circles in my office laboring over where God would have us go as a ministry and what it looks like for me to pastor this ministry well? Because, listen, my desire is not that we would do more things extravagantly, but that we would do the important things sincerely and simply. that we would, in godly simplicity, approach the throne of God in prayer and in worship. That by God's grace and through his Spirit's illumination, that when I stand up to preach or when Rich stands up to preach or when Mark or when any of the people who preach, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, they would proclaim the word of God to you. That it would be clear. That it wouldn't be flashy and it wouldn't be showy, but it would be sincere. Paul says that, that he conducted himself towards the Corinthians with simplicity and with sincerity. He goes on to say, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Earthly wisdom would say that the way that Paul will win the Corinthians is by out-preaching and out-miracling the people who are opposing him. Earthly wisdom would say that the way that you grow the church is by pizza parties and prize giveaways. And listen, Paul performs miracles. He has no problem with that. Paul preaches incredible sermons where masses of people are converted. It's not that these things are bad, but these things cannot hold a candle to simplicity and sincerity in the most important things. There's nothing wrong with different ways to attract people to your church. There's nothing wrong with pizza parties. I love pizza. 
I'll gladly throw a pizza party, but if that ever takes preeminence over the simple, sincere preaching of God's word, the worship of his people and their prayers, then we are doing something wrong. So Paul says, my conscience is clear in the way that I have interacted with you. It has been simple. It has been sincere. He says, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us. If you remember, again, what we've talked about with the history of Paul's interaction with the Corinthians, they've misunderstood some of the things he's saying. And I think in their misunderstanding, they have fallen into this sort of Publix magazine fallacy. And this is not a slight against Publix. They're awesome. But every time I walk through the Publix checkout aisle, I see all these very weird pseudo-Christian magazines where it says things like Bible Code Unlocked. <laughs> Uh, secrets of scripture revealed and it's things like if you read the Hebrew upside down with numbers attached to the letters uh, and hold your breath uh, that you're going to uncover some sort of secret message in the text and and this is what the Corinthians it seems like have started to do is they misunderstand them and they say there must be some sort of secret thing encoded here there must be some sort of um, some hidden knowledge and Paul says no there's nothing secret here I've written to you plainly and simply you understood it in part. I hope you, you understand it in its fullness. I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm not trying to, to trick you into anything. You don't need to hold your breath and attach numbers to each letter and read it on a full moon at 7 p.m. Or No, I, I've conducted myself with simplicity and sincerity. I'm writing to you nothing other than what I want you to be able to read and understand, and I hope that you'll fully understand it one day. And then, he turns their attention elsewhere. He, he says, we hope that you'll fully understand just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. My, my uncle is a landscape architect, which means that he went to school for something but somehow came out really good at drawing schematics of plants and, uh, and layouts of what gardens would look like. So he designed the garden at my parents' house. He did a lot of the landscaping here at Baylife. He was a founding member here at this church. Uh, and believe it or not, there was a time where I wanted to be an artist when I grew up. Uh, that was because I watched a lot of anime, and all I could think about was the dream of drawing Goku for a living. <laughs> and, and so there was a time where I, I went to my uncle probably in middle school and I wanted him to teach me how to draw because he's such a, a good artist. Uh, and imagine my disappointment when week one was not drawing pictures of Vegeta. It was teaching me how to just draw circles because I was bad at it. And so he, he lays down for me these principles of art and he says, here's how you draw a circle and here's how you draw a line. And one of the things that my uncle said to me, I forgot most of it because I realized that I couldn't draw and couldn't be taught to draw, um, but one of the things he said that has stuck with me is he says, if you want to draw a line and you want to draw a line as straight as you can, it's best not to focus on the line, but to, to put the start and the end point down and to focus on the end point. Now, this may not work for everybody, but for my uncle, he, he said that I draw straighter lines when I follow the end point rather than if I watch the line itself. Does that make sense? So, so for Paul, I think in, in many ways he's, he's doing what my, what my uncle commended to me. Because if all he does is focus on the conflict, ultimately, this conflict is going to come out resolved crookedly. So what Paul does, rather than just focusing on their objections, is he points them to a day beyond the one that they find themselves in. He points them to this day where he says that on that day, the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. 
He doesn't just point them to a time where the conflict is resolved. He points them to a time where all conflicts have been resolved in the return of Christ and in the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, on that day, on that day, you and I will stand before the God that we have prayed to together. You and I will stand before the Lord to whom we have sung. On that day, you and I will stand in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will look at me and I will look at you, and we will rejoice that God saw fit to make you my church and to make me your apostle. There was a movie that I watched when I was on this romantic comedy binge several years ago, uh, 27 Dresses which has Katherine Heigl and some guy who plays Superman in another show. And there's a scene where there's an interview with this guy who's a wedding photographer and a wedding writer, and they ask him, what's your favorite part of the wedding? And it's this classic scene that everybody, everybody knows. And he says, most people are looking at the front. They're looking at the altar. They're, they're look, or, I'm sorry, most people are looking at the bride as she walks in. But I always look at the groom because I want to see the groom's reaction when he sees the bride for the first time. And it's very romantic and heartwarming and lovely. And I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but I have noticed that in a lot of wedding videos in our day and age, there's this new aspect of the video, which is called the reveal, where the photographers kind of follow you around as you see each other for the first time in your full wedding regalia, right? Okay, this is what Paul is pointing to. Not literally a wedding, but he is saying that just as the husband sees his wife and his eyes well with tears and there's joy as he sees her in her fullness of beauty, just as the wife rejoices in seeing her husband uh, as he is decked to the T and looking handsome and, and looking wonderful, he says there will come a day where all of these conflicts, Corinth, that we have had with one another won't matter and you and I will see each other in our glorified bodies by the light of Christ and we will be so excited about what God has done in you and what God has done in me that we will boast in one another just as a husband or a wife celebrates their spouse on their wedding day there will come a time where you and I see each other and we can't help but think how stupid this conflict was because we will be so filled with joy about what God ultimately accomplished in your church and through my apostolic ministry. And I wonder if you and I have considered that, that there will come a day, whether you all stay at this church and in this ministry or you go to another church and another ministry, where you and I will stand together in the presence of Christ and I will rejoice at having been given the opportunity to be your pastor. And you will rejoice at what God did during your time in this ministry and the joy that it was to be given to this time and this place and this outpost of the kingdom. Paul wants them to draw straight lines here. He doesn't want them to just fix the problems. He wants them to see that the ultimate solution comes in the new heavens and the new earth where all of this is not going to matter. But now it does matter but we address problems better when we keep that day in mind. Luther so famously said, somebody asked him, how do you keep such a busy schedule? I mean, this is the man who would wake up at 3 a.m. because he needed to pray for four hours before he could start his day. And somebody said, how is, how is it that you keep such a full calendar? And he said, I have but two days on my calendar. There is this day in which I live, and there is that day upon which I stand before the Lord. And with those two days in mind, I move forward. Paul says the same thing. On this day we have conflict. On that day there will be perfect reconciliation and we will see one another and we will rejoice at what God has done 
among the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians, among me and you, among those of you who are sitting next to one another, among you who are husbands and wives or fiancés or boyfriends and girlfriends, there will come a day where you see one another and you rejoice and you boast about the majestic workings of God in the life of your brother and sister. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that we are not as those who have hope in this life only. Uh, Lord, that, that we have a hope that moves beyond the life in which we find ourselves, but it is not so that we might be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. But Lord, uh, this hope that we have is what fuels us all the days of our lives to live well, to live lives of integrity, to preserve our conscience, to walk in simplicity and in sincerity. God, I pray that you would make us a ministry who does those things. Lord, that you would make us a people who preserve our consciences and that those consciences are always formed and shaped by the testimony of Scripture. Lord, as we come to your table now in communion, what a great way to look forward to what you will do in a new heavens and a new earth as we anticipate the wedding supper of the Lamb. Meet with us now as we come to your table. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.